Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Fisherman's Post Saltwater Podcast Series. This episode is titled Sword Fishing in NC Waters, North Carolina Waters, and it's featuring Captain Jackson David of Intercoastal Angler here in Wilmington, Wrightsville Beach area. And we'll be covering such areas as picking a spot, behaviors and diet, rigging, the bite, and the fight. So we've got a great lineup of topics to talk under sword fishing in North Carolina waters. My name is Gary Hurley of Fisherman's Post. Fisherman's Post has been serving the southeast, uh, the North Carolina fishing community since 2003, bringing you fishing reports, fishing information, fishing tournaments, fishing schools, and now in the latest and greatest chapter, the Fisherman's Post Saltwater Podcast series, where we reach out to our captain and guide friends from up and down the coast and ask them to share with us their insights, their knowledge on how to catch more fish more often, albeit the higher goal, the truer purpose, is to get you and your family and friends out on the water, spending more time together more often. In this endeavor, I'm joined, as I am every episode, with podcast partner Billy Thorpe, Thorpe Creative. Billy, I'm excited for this podcast, really excited. Hey, what's up, Gary? Good to see you, man. Always a treat to be on the Fisherman's Post podcast and a really special treat to have our guests on tonight talking about swordfish. That's going to be awesome. I mean, I don't know if we've done an episode like this out of all the episodes. So I'm really excited to learn something that I have no clue about. <laughs> right? The learning curve is high here, man. He's, you know, it is a process that Jackson has been engaged in for some time. And man, lucky us, he's willing to share some of that process with us. Yeah, man, it's going to be good. And making this all possible, I want to give our sponsors a shout-out really quickly. Uh, we got Marine Warehouse Center, which I'm going to play a quick video from them. I'll be right back. At Marine Warehouse, we have everything. We have new boats. We have parts. We have accessories, new trailers. We have a complete service department with highly trained technicians. Anything you need to get out on the water, we have it. At Marine Warehouse Center, as we've grown over the last few years, now have a large section of marine supplies from start to finish for all your boating needs. What I love about this region is to be able to get out on the water and also we love to be able to get you out on the water. The best part of working at Marine Warehouse is being able to get involved with the customers and share a love for the water. All right, Gary. Awesome, man. Marine Warehouse Center. <laughs> always doing a great job over there. Sales, service, parts, you name it. They are huge supporters of the fishing community, so we really enjoy having them on as sponsors. And uh, you, you do business with them, Gary. You get your boat worked on I all do. the time. I take my boat, man. I haven't had to take it for a while. Hopefully, the next time I take it is bottom painted for the for the following uh, boating calendar, man. Hopefully, bottom yeah. paint is it. Hopefully, I don't need anything prior. But if I do, no. those guys are there. Gary, you actually have to use your boat to break stuff on it. So it has to be <laughs> Gary rides on other people's boats. I'm sure everyone knows that by now. If you didn't, now you do. I do. <laughs> also, want to give a, also want to give a big shout out to R. A. Hitch. Uh, Raleigh Apex Hitch here. Hitches, trailers, bike racks, and so much more. Uh, anything that you need to get your truck or your um, minivan outfitted, I guess. There's some people with minivans that are outdoorsmen. Uh, they got it, and Gary's going to get – he probably already he probably already got it by the time this episode airs, but he's going to get that uh, luggage rack for those boys. Yeah, I don't, instead of 20 bucks off, maybe you just tell them, hey, man, if you take me fishing out of Atlantic Beach, you know, I'll buy one of those luggage racks off of you. Maybe that should be the, the podcast angle. I'll, I'll have to talk to him about that. 
Yeah, take Gary fishing. That sounds like a great plan. That's great. No, if no, the general public, they'll call R.A. Oh, Hitch and say, I'd like to buy a luggage rack as long as he'll take me fishing <laughs> at Atlantic Beach. Oh, man. Yeah, and then they can catch fish on the boat and submit their fish picture, and we can share it here on the podcast. Do you like that segment? All you right. like that segue, Gary? Ooh, that's smooth. Yeah, it was smooth. That's why I get paid the big bucks. We got Luke Brady caught this pair of Spanish mackerel while casting a metal spoon in the Rodanthe surf. Uh, Good-looking fish there. Um, I'm jealous. I, I wish I was there fishing for Spanish mackerel right now, but I'm not. I'm here with Gary recording episodes for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be talking about fish that that Spanish mackerel might not be a big enough bait for is what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> right. Well, I'm excited for that. And uh, real quick, just so you guys know, if you want to support Gary and I as content creators, you can head over to buymeacoffee.com slash Fisherman's Post. Feel free to buy us a coffee. And then also a way to support the podcast if you're a local business owner uh, or, or really a business owner in the coast of North Carolina or you service people in the coast of North Carolina, uh, consider being a sponsor of the show. We're looking for new sponsors. Reach out to me directly, Billy at fishermanspost.com, and uh, I'll get you all the information to become a sponsor of the show. And uh, we can poke fun and make jokes and make stuff up that you say. <laughs> Yeah, maybe we need a new sponsor for the uh, fish joke, for the regular appearing fish joke, because Terrell, God bless him. God bless Terrell. Not doing it, huh? I I think he's getting older. God bless Terrell. That's a country song. He's not as sharp as he used to be. But you remain a bigger fan of Terrell's jokes than I do. So here I have. Here's Terrell's joke. Not mine, everyone. This is Terrell's joke. I'm just the messenger. What's the name? For what's the name for a fish that can make you look younger? I have no idea. That would be a plastic sturgeon. I I fumbled a a little bit there. Plastic plastic sturgeon. sturgeon. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to him. There we go. That's a good. You are so kind. Thanks. I hung up on him. (laughs) I hung up on him. Said, "Don't you ever call me again." Yeah, you you hit the you hit the red button like everyone's doing right now with our podcast. They're like, "Shut up, let's hear it already." Let's so talk gonna, fish. I'm gonna hand it to you, Gary. All right, man. Billy's best takeaway. When I'm finished talking with Jackson David, Billy's best takeaway. But right now, yes, Captain Jackson David of Intracoastal Angler, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show, Jackson. Yeah, absolutely, guys. I mean, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So we're going to be talking about sword fishing in North Carolina waters, but as is tradition on the Fisherman's Post podcast, we have two questions, two questions for our guests before we can get to the main event. Are you ready for your two questions, Jackson? Yes, sir. Hit me with it. First question, why should we listen to anything you have to say about a swordfish? Well, I'll tell you for a couple of reasons. Um, here in especially in Wrightsville Beach, I know the guys in Moorhead are a little bit ahead of us, but out of Wrightsville Beach, we're still kind of cutting our teeth on this fishery. Um, all of us, my guys, my group of friends, we all got together and got really interested in it probably three years ago. Uh, so we spent, I mean, we dedicated all of our fishing time to doing this and just, you know, trying to get better at being sword fishermen, trying to learn about them, you know, their habits, what they're eating, what they're doing, you know, how we can catch more of them. So we've been really successful at it. It took us a long time to kind of get everything dialed in the way we wanted it. But now that we've kind of got a, a pattern a little bit, you know, none of these fish are completely patternable, but um, we feel like we've gotten better at it, caught a bunch of nice fish, had some really good success. So, you know, the things that we've learned over our three years of fishing that have made us better, you know, we want to share with everybody else so they can go out there and kind of jump ahead of where we had to go through all the 
growing pains and get to the point we're at now, which is, man, it's an awesome fishery and we're so blessed to have it. Man, I think it's very admirable that you're willing to share this information because I know it's information that's hard to come by trial and error. And the fact that you're willing to give people a jump start, I think speaks to your character. Um, question number two, as is tradition, is a non-fishing related question. Although yours seems to be fishing. I don't really, I'll tell you, I don't really understand the question. This question was given to me by Ben at Intercoastal Angler. It seems to be fishing related. Are you ready for question number two? I'm ready. I can only imagine. What do you and Jordan do with the extra sash weights when you're sword fishing? <laughs> oh man, tell me. You can tell Ben we only carry one, and it goes to the bottom every time. <laughs> There's only one sash weight on the boat. So, uh, I mean, I didn't understand the question, but that's a good answer. I'll have a talk with him at the tackle shop tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. That's that's some reason I'm laughing, but I don't understand. Yeah, no, Let's talk fishing. Ben, ben likes to pick on me, man. He gives me a hard time, but love him to death. But... Let's talk fishing, man. Tell me about Let's picking a spot, man. There's a whole lot of water out there. You got to travel far. We're going to travel that far, burn that much gas. We need some help, Jackson. What do you got? Man, so the craziest thing about these swordfish is that they're uh, just like a marlin or a sailfish or, uh, you know, a white marlin, blue marlin, any of that stuff. They're, they're highly migratory. Um, they're moving all the time. And the things that we really look for, are, number one, getting in the right depth. So when you leave Wrightsville Beach to get to the depth that we prefer, which is anywhere from 14 to 1800 foot, you know, you're going to have to go anywhere between 75 and 85 miles, sometimes even further. Um, but the main thing we're doing is getting in that depth range, looking, you know, for a really good color water, you know, any other signs of life, just like you know, on the surface, it's another world down there on the bottom. So these fish live subsurface in the daytime. You know, they're closer to the bottom anywhere from 200 foot off the bottom all the way to the bottom. So they live in complete darkness. So when we're when we're searching a spot, we're looking for number one contour. That, that is always a, a major thing because that's holding bait, you know, just like wahoo fishing or king mackerel fishing or grouper fishing. You're looking for an area that those fish will stage you know, whether it be for a day or for a week, depending on what the water does. We really like fishing that structure. Um, another major thing that we've learned about these fish is that they, they use that bill that they have to dig a lot in, in the mud. So if you get to a spot and you drop and your sinker hits the bottom and your sinker, what we call sticks, uh, your sinker will stick in the bottom. Now we're dropping 12 pounds. So when that thing hits the bottom, it's a thud. I don't know what it sounds like because I'm not down there, but it's got to be a pretty loud noise when that thing sticks. And so in the mud, it'll hold. And then when you go to engage your reel, because we're all fishing electric reels, when you go to engage your reel, it'll double your rod over like you got a fish on it, but then you'll see it pull away. And that's a really good indication, you know, that you're in a muddy bottom. And those fish are spending a lot of time nosing in that mud. They're eating shrimp, little crabs, you know, all those deep water crustaceans that, uh, that they thrive on. So contour's a really good one. Mud's a really good one. If you can find the mud and the contour, you know, that's a honey hole. You're definitely going to get some bites. Um, but those two things are really indicative of, of finding an area where swordfish could be. And then lastly, if you do get around that water, you know, that, that water is nutrient rich. So if it's, if it's a good piece of water moving through there, those fish are with it. You'll see, you know, you can see dolphins as in Mai Mai. You can see dolphins as in like flipper dolphins. Um, and you can see all other kinds of like birds, grass. That's all really good indications that you're in a nutrient rich area and that, you know, you got a really good chance of catching something on the surface, but a really good chance of also catching a swordfish in the deep. Man, so sorry if this is a dumb question, 
but like contour wise, are we talking about a ledge? Are we talking about a depth change? Like what is ideal to you when you say contour? Is it a, a like a curve in the current? Like I'm just trying to better understand because I, I am challenged still when it comes to certainly deep offshore fishing. No, yeah, and that's a great question. So when we're speaking of contour, we're talking about a change in the bottom depth. Um, mainly, you know, we're looking for ridges or bowls or places that that current can roll over top of and create almost like a, an eddy or a whirlpool in the bottom where those fish can kind of lay out of that tide. So in the Gulf Stream, when we're out that deep, generally we're having to deal with anywhere from two and a half to three knots. Um, sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. But generally that's it. And you want to find a place where those fish can lay up out of that tide. So they'll get in the bottom of those little bowls where the contour goes from maybe maybe it's only 100 foot and it'll go or 50 foot. It'll go from 1700 to 1750 and then it'll drop one off to 1800. Well, they'll lay behind all of that, you know, wait for that bait to wash over. Same thing with a big ledge. You know, we've been fishing some really big pieces of bottom here in the past year and stuff. And it's uh, it's really cool to see how that current will boil over top of it. And you can see those fish, you know, laying right in there behind it where you get a lot of your bites, which is very interesting to us. And it has so many correlations to inshore fishing too. You know, if you can imagine a trout laying on a mud bank and he's nosed in there behind the tide and every time your bait floats past out of that tide, he snaps it. Well, it's kind of the same thing when you're fishing a big piece of bottom in the deep for a swordfish, you know, whole different world, same aspect of fishing. They're, they're still laying in there out of that tide waiting for the right time to swoop in to grab whatever it be squids or little fish or you know hopefully your swordfish bait man i like it and uh, i th i think that's a great analogy i follow exactly and again just in review like if someone is reading this or watching this listening to it they're thinking you're telling them prepare for 1400 minimum 75 minimum like you got to get out there even 14 yeah. to 1800. it's it's a long ride i i can't tell you uh can't tell you how many days we spent floating around out in what we felt like the, was the middle of nowhere. Um, probably a year and a half worth of just going and looking and testing, pulling fish off, trying new things. So it was a learning process for sure. Well, your next talking point, and I think you've already sort of touched on some of them, was behaviors and diets. So swordfish behaviors, swordfish diet. You might even list them separately, and I put them together. Um, it seems like you've already started that conversation and talking about how they sort of hang out. What, what do you got to add to it? Yeah, so like I said, a, a swordfish is highly migratory. They're moving all the time. Um, you know, they catch a lot of them in South Florida, uh, in the Keys and that kind of thing. But we've got that same body of fish that make it up here, I feel like, you know, at certain times of the year, especially when you see your breeders come through. That's going to be all your bigger fish. Anything over, you know, 350 pounds, I think you could probably classify as a breeder. Um, like I said, we're still cutting our teeth on it, but for the most part in their behaviors, they move a lot. They're eating a lot of different things. They're very opportunistic. So, I mean, anything they can find down there is generally something they're going to be feeding on. And that could be, you know, squid, uh, lancet fish, which pretty much looks like a big jumbo ribbon fish. Um, but they're, they're really opportunistic. I mean, they want, they want to feed and, uh, they want to keep moving. So, you know, the same place that you fished yesterday, you know, it could be bad today. Those fish could have moved five or six miles up the beach. So, it's really interesting in how they act. They're, they're super protective over their eyes. And obviously, because that's one of their main mechanisms of defense down there, you know, a swordfish's eyeball on a hundred pounder is the size of, you know, almost a softball or half a softball. It's, it's a huge eyeball. So you got to think about the amount of stuff they can take in down there with that limited amount of light or no light. So 
most of the time they spend their, their time in darkness. It's, it's pretty crazy to imagine that a fish down there living in complete darkness can feed effectively, you know, mate effectively, and, and obviously, you know, reproduce the kind of fishery that we have off of Wrightsville Beach. So their behavior is really interesting, and I think it's ever-changing, you know, depending on where they are. If they're here, they could be just transitioning through, and you're catching fishes or transitioning. Um, as, as we're in the Keys, they could be breeding. I mean, I, I don't know as much about that side of it, but I feel like everywhere you go, you know, those fish are on a different pattern. They're doing a different thing, but at the end of the day, it's a swordfish, and they're, they're a lot of fun to catch, and it's a really interesting thing to figure out. And so did you tell me earlier already in this podcast that they're spending their time within 200 feet of the bottom? Like that's, that's behavior specific. And, and that's, that's generically true. You know, when we're fishing all of our baits, you know, for the most part, anywhere from 250 foot from the bottom to right on the bottom. Um, we usually meet in the middle and we're anywhere from 80 to a hundred foot off the bottom. Um, so we feel like that's the best, you know, area for the strike zone. Now, at the night, in the nighttime, you know, those fish rise all the way to the surface. You know, they, they'll feed right on top of the water in the dark. But during the daytime, they, they spend most of their time down there deep. And, uh, and that's where we tend to find most of our bites being, you know, anywhere from 80 to 150 foot off the bottom. Have you patterned anything as far as seasons go, like the better time of the calendar to, for the best chance of a bite or the best chance of a bigger fish? You know, I, I still feel like, and we talked about this when we first started, you know, trying to catch these things, the summer months are awesome. Um, I feel like we have a lot of fish moving through. There's some really big fish moving through. Uh, I think the state record was caught, which is still set from back in the 70s, I think it is. Um, that was in August. So, you know, those fish are moving through June, July, August, I think are your best months. Um, we've caught them all the way through, you know, I think we caught one as early as january 3rd or something like that of last year so there's still fish always there um it's just a matter it's just a matter of getting in the mass congregation of them you know when they're coming through here and then i guess i would ask like what about conditions because in in my limited dialogue of sword fishing it seems like you gotta have very mild conditions for it to work right whatever it is whatever you're going to share with us about it is and it seems like on days where the conditions would allow wahoo or billfish or mahi fishing might be a little bit too much for sword fishing. Have you found that to be true? Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost is your weather. Um, it's got to be pretty enough for you to make it those 80 miles. And then once you get there, it's got to be pretty enough for you to fish effectively. And then if it's pretty enough for you to fish effectively, you got to have the tide and the current right to be able to make your right, what we call a drift. Um, so really when you get out there, if you've got a pretty weather day, you're looking for anywhere from a knot and a half to two and a half knots of tide. Um, if you've got any less than that, it makes it tough because you don't cover a lot of ground and your bait kind of, your bait doesn't have much action. You don't get much going as far as a momentum swing for your fish to be able to feed. Um, but we also see that, you know, depending on pieces of water, if there's a pretty piece of water there, generally there's some tide in that water and that, that lends to better fishing. So same thing on the other side of it. If you've got four knots of tide, it makes it really hard to stay in contact with the bottom number one. It makes it really hard to see a bite. And then just like if you if you've ever been to like Mason's Inlet or Rich's Inlet or anywhere like that, and there's a lot of tide going out and everybody's trying to anchor up to party on the beach, and you have to let a lot of scope out of your line on your anchor rope for it to hold, right? It's the same yeah. thing in the deep. When there's a lot of tide in the deep out there where we're sword fishing, you know, that makes us have to let more scope out of our reel. So if it's eighteen hundred foot and there's four knots of tide, you know, we could have 
well over 3,000 feet of line out, 3,000 revolutions of line out. So, man, that's that's great information on tide and current. And I guess maybe I unassumingly was thinking they were also say, saying that like waves were a factor. Like if it's just too rough on the surface aside from tide or current, if it's too rough, then that, I don't know if that problematizes the drop or problematizes seeing the bite. What about, what about waves on the surface? Yeah. So that's, that's a great question, you know, and that, that definitely plays a massive factor into it. Number one, if it's too rough, it's hard to set in general. Um, when we're making a drift, you know, as complicated as it sounds, we're going into the tide and then dropping our bait as we're going into the tide. And so we'll set that thing with some speed, you know, back into the current. And then whenever we get to the depth that it says on the depth finder or a little bit further than that, we'll stop and then get ready to come back on that bait to get straight up and down. And so if, it, if it's rough, that makes it super tough, you know. And then you, once you do get set, if you make it that far, um, the bite is, it can be extremely hard to see if it's rough. I mean, you know, a swordfish bite looks, the best way I can put it, looks like if you're trying to catch a snapper um, or a beeliner or something like that inshore. It's just a little... You know, it could be a 50-pounder or a 500-pounder, but you just get a little tap on the end of your rod, and uh, it's very subtle. So, you know, the waves and the, and the sea conditions play a huge factor. If it's, if it's rough, man, it's, it's a very tough sport to do when it's rough. Well, what about that rig? I mean, maybe this is, unless you've got more to share about conditions, behaviors, diet. I mean, I, you know, you mentioned several things with diet, but I guess we'll get to what exactly you're putting on a hook now if we switch over to rigging. Is that... So how, does that sound good? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so rigging a swordfish bait, the main thing you want to keep in mind from what we've found and the, and the research we've done and what we're fishing to date is um, sturdiness. You want that bait to be, you know, almost bulletproof, not only because you've got to drop it so deep and it's got to get to the bottom, but because once those fish try to eat it, they're just like a blue marlin. You know, they're going to come in there most of the time and they're going to try to kill it with their bill. Um, unlike a blue marlin or a white marlin or a sailfish bill, which is rounded, a swordfish bill is almost like a knife. It's flat with very sharp edges. So when they come in there to eat that bait, they're swatting at that bait, trying to chop it in half. So they do the same thing with a squid. A squid is a very soft bait. And that's why we don't fish a bunch of them in the daytime is because they're hard to keep, you know, they're hard to keep all together on the hook through seven or eight whacks. So we're fishing more of a belt. We're fishing like a belly strip. So it's either going to be a bonita belly a dolphin belly, um, a wahoo belly, you know, any kind of sturdy belly meat that comes out of a fish is, is really a, a candidate for a swordfish bait. Um, but mainly what we'll do is we'll take a 10 alt, and I've got one of them, I brought one of them here to show you, but we'll take a 10 alt mustad, um, and that's a that's a SS7732, uh, 7732, and it's got that wide gap in it for one reason that I like a lot is it grabs more when they go to bite it. You know, a swordfish has a really, really soft, you know, whole demeanor. They don't get a lot of sunlight and their bodies are almost like jello. So hooking a swordfish can be extremely difficult. Uh, there's only a few hard spots on their body. Everything else is, you know, very mushy feeling. When you catch one, you'll see that. But it's a very it's a very soft bodied fish, so you pull a lot of hooks on these fish. But we wanna we wanna mainly, you know, have a bait that's conducive for them to be able to eat without tearing it off the hook. Um, so we we do a lot of different things trying to trying to keep those baits on the hooks, which I'll explain to you here in a minute. But Number one is just having a sturdy bait um, and getting it down there to them without it getting messed up or tangled up. All right, more on the rig, man. I want to see, I understand that concept. I want to see or hear more about application. Yeah, absolutely. So when we cut a belly strip, it's usually anywhere from 12 to 16, 18 inches long. Um, and when you open up that cavity that's been down there where, uh, you know, underneath the fish, 
we'll uh, we'll measure out where our hook needs to be, um, and we'll take that tent off. And then most of the time, what we'll do is we'll lay that hook, you know, all pushed all the way up to the front end of the belly, which is a little bit hard to explain. But you'll push it up the front end of the belly and then poke it through, um, and then you'll run some 250 or 300 pound test through the eye of the hook, which actually goes through the belly. So essentially, what you're doing, if anybody's ever fished like a um, like a strip bait for like a king mackerel, you're punching it the same way. The hook punches through the strip bait, and then you've got everything. The shank of the hook lays flat against the bottom of the belly, and then you want to, then you've got to stitch that thing up. So if that makes sense, a strip bait's the easiest way to think about it. Um, is that you've got the thing punched through, laying flat against the bottom of the belly. Uh, and then we'll run our mono actually through the eye of the hook and through the top of the belly, which actually binds it to it. So when that fish eats it, he can't tear the bait away from the hook without ripping it through the whole belly. Um, and then once we've got that thing in there secured like that, we'll begin our stitching. So we take a 70-pound floss uh, and a rigging needle, and we'll stitch that. We'll cross-stitch that thing all the way down through the top of the belly, which is a little bit difficult to think about, but... Um, but you basically make stitches all the way up down the top of the belly, and then you'll turn around and come back. And that just binds that whole bait together to keep anything from being able to tear it off. And it also makes it really effective to be able to drop. It's all streamlined, um, and it has a great action when you get it down there as well. So the main thing is just using that floss and the needle to be able to bind that bait together to keep anything from being able to rip it off, you know, making it more effective to hook fish on. And then what about... A what about the weight to get it down or, or the finishing touches other than tying the rig, tying the bait strip to the hook? Yeah, no. So what we do for the most part, as far as our, our rod and reel setup is we're fishing a, uh, about 150 foot wind on, um, the 150 foot wind on is connected to your braid, you know, and we're fishing 80 pound braid. Uh, a lot of people say that that, you know, if you don't know a lot about it, you say, wow, 80 pound braid, that sounds, it sounds light for what you're doing, especially putting a, a 12 pound sinker on it and then trying to catch a four or 500 pound fish on it. Um, but it's actually the opposite. You want that lighter braid, not only because it's super strong, but because it cuts the water better. So when you're making that drop, you want something that's really gonna not have a lot of drag to it. So the smaller you can get in diameter and the smaller you can get in pound test in that braid is really most effective for making that drop and cutting the line. I mean, and uh, cutting the water. But as far as making a drop, whenever we get ready to do, at that point, you know, we've rigged the whole 150 foot wind on, you get to a swivel at the end of the 150 foot, which goes to your bite leader, which is 250. And the 250 is connected to your hook and your belly strip that I just told you about a second ago, that all that comes together as one piece. So it sounds a little bit confusing whenever you see it, you know, all in action, it's a lot easier. Um, but if you work back up towards the front where your connection is to your braid and your mono, um, there's a floss loop about four or five foot from your connection. And we make that out of 70 pound floss too. And that's where your weight attaches. So your weight is actually a hundred and you know, hundred and forty foot, hundred and thirty-five foot from your uh, from your bait. And so that keeps everything from getting tangled up. So when we snap that weight on, it's got a long line clip that attaches to the loop. And then whenever you snap that thing on, you can drive away from the boat, keeps all your hundred and thirty something foot behind the weight stretched out, and then you've got that weight up there at the front. And that's uh that's just a way to keep everything, you know, away and getting keeping it from getting tangled up. Man, I had no idea. Like, I mean, again, I've, I've been curious, but not curious enough to research. But the fact that the weight is 130 feet away is intriguing, man. And so you're dropping, when you're dropping that rig, sometimes you let it hit the bottom just to see if you get that muddy bottom. And then other times you're targeting right. more, like you said, about 80 to 125 feet. 
Right. So when we make our drift, we'll we'll actually back up on. When I said we, earlier we were going to back up on top of the um on top of the rod, what we're doing is we're trying to find you know get the most straight up and down vertically straight spot to the bottom. We want to be as in line with it as we can because if you're again going back to the scoping out thing, if you're scoped way away from your rod, if your line angle is way out away from the boat, you know that's going to take more line to get to the bottom. So we'll back up onto it after we've set into the tide. You know, we'll back back up on top of it, get straight up and down, and then after we've gotten to that point, we'll sink it and try to find the bottom. And that gives us a great indication of, you know, how much tide there is, you know, how far we need to be fishing off the bottom, how much swing we're going to get in it. You know, the, even with a 12-pound weight, you're still going to get swing in your line as you're fishing. So, you know, you could hit the bottom, reel it up 150 foot, and then when you go to find the bottom again, which we, we try to find the bottom every, you know, 8 to 10 minutes. When you go to find the bottom again, you could be – 300 foot off the bottom you know even without even with all that weight there's still the chance that tide you know swings that sinker up and you and you lose some of your scope that you originally started with so it's always a it's always a kind of back and forth game you know trying to get a bite sword fishing it's it's a lot of work it's a lot of you know people think of an electric reel you just drop it down there when he eats it you crank him up that's that's really not the case there's there's a lot more finesse into it that goes to keeping your bait in the strike zone um that makes for that makes for a great bite uh, and one of the most important things I forgot to mention about the wind on that I was telling you about earlier, um, we fish two or three lights on that wind on. So the, the lights are free, free floating. So you're going to rubber band those lights. You know, we do it. We do the first one about 20 foot away from the bait. And then we do the next one about 15 feet above that and so on and so forth. Um, and that light, you know, people have all kinds of different opinions about what the light does. Ultimately, I think it, it helps in bringing, bringing the presentation to your bait. You know, you're you're dropping your bait into a completely dark world. Um, and so in a completely dark world, a little bit of light goes a long way. So we're fishing these little bitty Durabrite lights. I'll show you one. I brought one right here. I don't know if you can see that thing blink right there, but it's it's just a little bitty light like that. It slides onto your bait or slides onto your main line. And that's up and down the wind on. So that's an added effect. You know, we do every little bit of thing we can uh, sword fishing to bring attention to the bait so that, not only you're dropping into this dark place, but we've got a little bit of light to, you know, help attract fish. And it creates kind of a, a frenzy down there, I think, in my eyes, when you do drop a light down there with it. So I want to make sure I was following. You drop, so you might drop it down to the bottom, start your drift. And then you were saying about maybe about every eight minutes. Is that what you said? You're going to let more line out and let it hit the bottom again? Right, yeah. So every eight, every eight to ten minutes, we want to what we do check bottom, um, and we'll drop that sinker, you know, free fall back to the bottom, and see how much line, how far away you are from the bottom. Because if you let it go forever and just made your drift, you know, there's no telling. By the end of the drift, you could have been spending thirty minutes in a dead zone, um, as far as your bait swinging out away from, you know, out of the strike zone, out of that perfect depth from the bottom. So yeah, and another thing that it really, you know, makes sense with is when you drop that bait you know, the bait gets a scared action. You know, that bait's falling. They don't know that there's a sinker attached to the front of it. So that bait goes screaming towards the bottom. If there was a fish, you know, tracking on it or, or with it, he could he could follow that thing right down there and eat it on the way to the bottom. And we've caught some fish like that too. You know, they see the bait go to drop to the bottom and they chase it right down and eat it on the way. So checking bottom adds action to your bait and it also keeps you in the strike zone for uh, for more bites. So how long will you drift and check bottom, drift and check bottom before you say, bring it up, we're starting a new drift? 
Yeah, so it really depends on what kind of bottom we're fishing. If we're fishing a long piece of bottom, whether it be just a ridge or a bowl, like I talked about earlier, we'll let that drift go on for, you know, an hour, hour and a half, something like that. Um, if we're fishing a smaller piece of bottom that's just got a, you know, more of a drastic contour change, um, we'll drift it until we feel like we've cleared the bottom and we're, we're out of where you could, where we think you could get a bite. Um, so it all depends, you know, I would say on average, most of our drifts are 45 minutes. And at that point, you know, you want to check your bait, make sure everything's still good. Make sure you haven't wasted 45 minutes with a tangled rig. Cause that's a, an always problem, you know, especially getting started when you're first figuring it out, you're going to have some tangles. And so it's always good to reel that thing up after 45 minutes or so. And just make sure you hadn't been fishing with a big bird's nest down there. Man, any any tips you can share with us now that you've learned about how best to avoid the tangles? Yeah, so the tangle, I almost think it's good to get a couple of tangles when you're first doing it because it teaches you what you did wrong. Um, but my best word of advice from not getting a tangle is stay into the tide. Don't drop too fast. Um, a lot of people think you can just throw that thing out into freeze pool like you would grouper fishing and send it to the bottom. You know, let that thing, you don't let it creep out, but don't let it go a thousand miles an hour either. You got to think that that weight is following like a bullet and the bait is traveling 130 feet behind it as fast as the as fast as the weight's moving because it's jerking it to the bottom. So if you think about it, when you let it drop faster, that sinker and your and your wind on where the bait's on all become parallel. You know, if you let that thing go a long time, the closer they get to tangling. So if you stop it every now and again on the way to the bottom or if you drop it slowly, it keeps everything stretched out. And then when you're you know going into the current, obviously the current's in your favor. So the current's pulling your bait backwards as your sinker falls, and it keeps everything more streamlined, keeps you from getting a tangle. And main thing I can say, main word for dropping your first couple of times, just drop slowly. I mean, there's no reason to be in a rush. There's probably not going to be anybody out there around you. You're not competing against anybody. Just get the thing to the bottom in one piece, and uh, and you'll have a, obviously a lot better luck at uh, getting a bite. Man, that's a great answer. Um so before we go to the bite, I guess one last question on your drift. Like if you do a 30-minute, 40-minute drift and check the bottom and you get nothing, is your habit to do that same drift again, or are you now saying, all right, let's let's play some different water? Yeah, so that's another awesome question. Um, we'll make a drift kind of in the middle ground to begin with. So when I say that, we won't make it shallow. We won't make it super deep. We'll kind of drift in the middle just to get our bearings and see how everything's going for the day, what everything's laying out. Um, and then if we don't get a bite, you know, in the middle ground, generally we'll move one direction, whether that be inshore or offshore, or if we're fishing the piece of bottom, we'll move to the offshore piece side of the bottom or the inshore piece of the bottom and, uh, and try it again. You know, those fish, like I said, they could be staging in all kinds of different areas. So just like an inshore fish, you know, if you're trying to catch a trout on a certain Creek corner and he's not laid on the front side of that corner, then he could be laid in the middle or he could be laid in the backside. You can see that kind of stuff trout fishing because the tide's, you know, visual. Down there, you can't see as much. You're kind of depending on what your what your drift tells you and what the wind's doing. So we always move around, you know, especially if we haven't gotten a bite on a drift a couple of times. We'll definitely swing inshore, swing offshore. But you got so much time and, you know, you're fishing just a select area right there that you've kind of dialed in on. Why not try inshore or offshore, see if you can get you another bite? Now what about the bite? And you've already sort of talked about it being a subtle bite. I think you even used the analogy of a snapper bite. So what do you got? Take take us in a little bit more detail about the swordfish bite. Yeah, so the swordfish bite is probably one of the hardest bites. Well, I take that back. Some days it can be super easy to see. Um, other days it can be the most frustrating thing to try to figure out in the entire world. 
Um, a swordfish bite, they're down there, like I said, they're going to whack the bait two, three, four times before they ever commit to it, most of the time, to eating it. So what you're looking for is as you're drifting, the rod has a natural tendency. So if you think about it and you pick your rod up and down, up and down while you're sitting at the dock, the rod bends. And then when you get to the top and get ready to drop it back down, the rod goes straight again and then it'll bend and then it'll go straight again. So think of it the same way. If you're out there drifting and the waves of the, the waves are rocking the boat up and down, well, that's causing your rod to move, but it'll give it a natural motion. So it'll be up and down, up and down, up and down. And sometimes you'll just see an inconsistency in the rod. So the rod where it's supposed to, where you're coming up in a wave, and it should have been getting ready to go light, it's still holding heavy. That could be a bite. You always want to try them after that. If you think that you had a bite, it's better to try them and check it than, uh, than to just let it go. And then other times, you know, it can be as clear as day. You'll be staring at it, and it'll, just, it'll look like he just piles on it. You know, the rod will jump super hard like you got a big grouper bite, or anybody's ever been snowy fishing, it looks like a snowy grouper trying to eat your deep drop hole. So it, there's two different sides of it. It can be really, really hard to see, or it can be really easy to see. Um, once you get the bite, this is probably one of the most crucial parts of, of sword fishing, in my opinion. Um, when we when we see a bite or think that we're getting a bite, generally we'll go over and try to chase that bait away from the fish. And what we're trying to do there is we're trying to entice the fish. They're so protective over what they have down there as their eyes and not you know not damaging that that they're gonna they're gonna have to get jacked to come and try that bait again. So we'll crank it away from them, usually 50 or 60 foot, and then we'll um, we'll stop the bait again. And generally, that fish will come right back up there. He'll have been following you the whole time, and he'll come right up there at those 60 foot, and you'll watch him eat it again. And then when he does it again, we'll crank it away another 50 or 60 foot and stop it. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to make that fish think that he's injured the bait, and the bait's now trying to get away, and that he's trying to track it down to finish his meal. Whereas, in my opinion, you know, don't get me wrong, there's a thousand different opinions on this. My thought process is if you left that bait sitting there, that fish would hit it and it wouldn't do anything. And then you hit it again and it wouldn't do anything. And I feel like maybe sometimes you get fish that lose interest, you know, in those baits that don't react naturally, just like anything else in the environment would. Um, so after the second time we've come up, you know, getting that bait away from the fish, if he tries it again, my thought process is that we're trying to, now we want him to think he's killed it. So we'll sink that bait, whether it be 100 foot or 150 foot. We'll sink the bait, you generally that area, and then we'll stop it again. And after we've stopped at that time, one of two things will happen. He'll either have chased it down and eaten it on the way down, and you'll watch your rod go slack, which means that he's eaten it on the way down, and now he's trying to swim back to the surface. Or you'll see your rod double over, which means that you got him on again because he's swimming down with it and he's holding on to it. Or he'll be back down there whacking it again, and you'll have to start the whole process over again. So it's a, it's a super, I know that all sounds way too confusing, but it's a chess match with these fish. Um, they're, they're not going to commit, you know, it's just like a white marlin or something like that that you see on the teaser. If the white marlin comes in there on the teaser and you don't give him anything, he's going to eat your teaser and he's going to swim away. You know, so you got to get the teaser away from the white marlin, feed him a pitch bait or feed him the bait that you got in the water and get that fish to react and act naturally when he sees a bait. Same thing with a swordfish. You want those fish to think that they're hurting the bait just like they would when they were chasing a school of squids. So that's what we're, that's our, our whole come full circle is we're trying to, uh, we're trying to entice those fish and make them feel like it's a natural thing that's happening. They chase the bait down, we feed them the bait. And then, you know, if everything goes right, you hold on to them and you kill a nice swordfish. And then what can I expect from the fight? Let's say it does, we have an official hookup and we are engaged. I know we're dealing with electric 
but what can we what can we expect yeah so the fight is it, it can go one of two ways um he can either you know kind of dog you out the whole way you'll see your real stall out uh we're fishing anywhere on the bite we're generally at 20 pounds of drag we want to drive that hook you know right out of the gate but then we'll come straight back to 15 to 17 pounds of drag um you really want to fish as light a drag as possible because again like i said they've got an unreal soft mouth um their whole body's soft so you've got to hope that you hooked him right dead in the corner of the mouth or foul hooked him somewhere or he swallowed it best case scenario he swallowed it so um once you hook the fish up generally your fish over 150 pounds will swim that what we call swim the sinker um and if you think about it at least this is my thought process a normal fish you know the pressure is applied from above so that fish is swimming down to get away from the pressure that's being applied above well with these fish the pressure is being applied from below with the sinker so when they eat it they start swimming up trying to get away from the pressure that's coming from below them. so if you get a bigger fish that has the power to swim that sinker up generally one over 100 150 pounds they'll swim that sinker all the way to the surface you know coming to check you out they're they're angry most of the time um and so we'll we'll reel that reel up and it'll be going as fast as it can trying to catch the uh trying to catch the slack out of it and uh, that's generally indicative of being a nicer fish some of the smaller fish that you'll hook you know they'll just kind of bog you out bog you out here and there and they'll come to the surface pretty pretty docile now the really cool thing about a swordfish is unlike almost any other fish in the ocean they have the ability to change depths you know drastically fast so that fish that, that big fish is swimming your sinker up he's going from frigid cold waters on the bottom that see no sunlight straight up to the 80 degree water that you're fishing in in a matter of minutes and he survives you know a, a snowy grouper or any other bottom grouper that you catch like that in the deep by the time they get up there close to the surface they're blown up like a basketball and their eyes are popping out of their head well swordfish is the exact opposite they have the ability to be able to change depth really quickly um, and when they get to the surface they get 10 times more angry uh, when they come through the thermocline, which is if you ever look at your depth finder and you see the fuzzy line when you're fishing offshore, and see, depending on where you are, it's going to be in the middle of your screen most of the time, but it could be up or down. But it's just that fuzzy line that you'll mark. That's the thermocline, and that's generally the change in uh, change in water temperature. So for us, most of the time, the thermocline's at five or six hundred foot, and that's a jump in like almost you know eight or ten degrees of water. So it's electrifying to those fish when they come through that, and you'll notice when you're fighting them a lot of times that the fish will start acting really crazy around that thermocline. Well, that means he's getting into that warm water and he's starting to freak out. So after they do that, when they cross the thermocline, generally they're going to come up and show themselves, especially if it's a nicer fish. Um, and they'll come to the surface. They could do one of two things. You know, come up, spin around, have your dorsal fin out of the water. You get a good look at them. You get, you know, you can, you, at that point, you want to take your sinker off. What we had, where we had it clipped on when I was telling you earlier about it, the, at the, uh, right below the connection. You want to take yep. that sinker off and then you're just fighting the fish. So that fish will come up and look at you. And most of the time, if it's a good one, he'll go back to the thermocline and try to be right there on the brink of, you know, whether it's where it's hot and cold, he's trying to stay out of that hot water. But it's really interesting to watch them do that because they can change these depths so quickly without it affecting them. And then once you get them back to the boat, that's a whole nother battle. They've never really seen daylight before. And most of these fish don't really understand it. So it would be like, you know, sleeping all night or going to a movie in the middle of the day and then walking outside without your sunglasses on, it would blind you. So they're the same way. They come to the surface and they're looking for shade. And the only place that there's shade is underneath your boat. So <laughs> as bad as that sounds, they want to spend all their time underneath your boat trying to stay out of the sunlight. So you get the fish back to the surface and he starts going crazy, jumping, and then he comes right underneath your boat. So it can make for a really hectic 
you know, it could be a screaming match sometimes with whoever you're fishing with, but, uh, you know, it's all in good fun. And at the end of the day, if you get to kill the fish, that's, that's icing on the cake for me, man. Just, just getting to see them and watch the bite and watch how a fish can react from, from so deep to so shallow is, uh, that's truly a blessing in itself just to be able to get to go do that. So, man, I'm, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And even as you're talking, even when we started this podcast, I was like, man, this is more than one podcast. There's so much to talk here. But I think we did great. I think you did great with, you know, with our first Swordfish and NC Waters podcast. Before we, I got a couple of things to do to wrap up, though. But the first one is, man, uh, you've already sort of helped out with like, hey, how to avoid tangles or something in that spirit, can you give me one or two, you know, maybe just one more thing that you sort of gathered over three years that you've thought to yourself, man, I wish someone just would have told me that. I'll tell you number one that comes to my mind. Um, and I, I know I'm sounding like a salesman, like I'm plugging the tackle shop here, but, um, just make the, if you're going to do it and you're going to be serious about it, like, like you said, Gary, we could have, I mean, I could sit here for a two-hour conversation and tell you about all the little nitpicky stuff that goes through my mind while sword fishing. Um, but the number one thing for me is just make the investment in a nice electric reel. If, if you're going to get one, just do it. You know, go all in on it and go out there and enjoy it. Um, or catch a ride with a buddy first to see if you're going to enjoy it. And then go get a nice electric reel if you're going to get into it for yourself. We made the mistake when we were first trying to figure it out because, you know, there was nobody out of here doing it. It was just us. Um we made the mistake of taking some old electric reels that we had dredge fished with, you know, for blue Marlins and stuff like that. And, uh, we, we lost a couple, you know, giant fish, really nice fish, um, because of faulty equipment, you know, stuff that the drags were all burnt out on them because we had been blue Marlin fishing with them for 10 years. And, you know, all the other numerous things that comes along with a reel that's been through the ringer, especially with putting out that much drag, these fish are so finesse oriented and they're so, you know, they're so sensitive to things that change make the investment for the right equipment because otherwise you're going to end up coming back frustrated like I did for the first, you know, 10, 11 times that we tried it, you know, before we ever caught one. So investing in the right stuff, this, this is, this, this is one of those things that you got to have the right equipment to do it. Uh, no, man, that doesn't sound like salesmanship, man. That that comes across sincere and really it leads right into what my second question was going to be. I mean, you are talking to us as a representative of Intercoastal Angler. We are very fond of Intercoastal Fisherman's Post, the podcast, very fond of Intercoastal Angler. And so I was just going to give you the floor just to like tell everyone a little bit about Intercoastal Angler and how they can help you rig up for the swordfish. And I, I want people to read this or watch this, to listen to it, and then say, hey, man, let's go visit. Let's go find that dude. Let's go find Intercoastal Angler. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. We, um, so as we've grown with all this, you know, the sword fishing hype around Wrightsville Beach, we've, we've tried to acquire all the fits and pieces, you know, that you need to make an effective day at it. So obviously anything that we can do for somebody that wants to start sword fishing, we carry, you know, all the tackle fully stocked for sword fishing. And then you can come listen to me talk crazy about them for however long you want to, two or three hours. But um, yeah, you know, as far as hooker reels, you know, LPs, harpoons, you know, we carry all the lights, you know, all the tackle and then. We got a little bit of expertise up there too. You know, we've, we've caught our fair share of them and we'd be glad to share it with anybody, you know, get you all set up for it, show you the right lines. You know, we sell a lot of pre-rigged swordfish baits too, you know, stuff that uh, Bionic and Baitmaster have made. Um, they all make really nice stuff. You catch fish on that. Uh, but really anything you need, you know, A to Z swordfishing, we've got pretty much all of it. Andrew, uh, that builds all of our custom rods at the shop, 
he uh, built my swordfish rod. You know, that's the one we caught the 500 pounder on. And um, he builds a fantastic rod. So, you know, if you ever get in the market of wanting a custom rod sword fit for sword fishing, you know, Andrew will build you any color. Uh, he'll put your boat name on it, you know, all around just a, a great group of guys that are all willing to lend a hand. Even Ben, you know, Ben gives me such a hard time, but I love him to death. And uh, and any of the guys up there would be glad to help you with anything sword fishing, including myself. Man, Jackson, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, man. This was great talking sword fishing with you. I have too. And I, I know that uh, I know that some people will watch this and they'll be like, man, what is this guy talking about? But you know, if you do some research on it and, and please do come talk to me, you know, I can, I can try to break it down a little bit more. I know that, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't get through all the aspects of it, but there's, there's just so much to, to hear about it and so much to learn about this fishery. Yeah, man, we could have done a whole podcast on just the rig. I mean, there's could have so many from here, but man, I think you did a great job of a primer and I see in our future, bringing you back and talking in more, more detail, man. All right. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate you having us. All right, Jackson. Later, man. Gary, what an episode. I always say that, but I am really impressed by this episode. One, because I yeah. had, you know, I, this isn't my world at all. Like, not at all. That's a that's a really far distance for someone to walk. <laughs> that's how I fish most of the time. Um, so, yeah, man, I, I guess my takeaway would be a lot, but I guess my one takeaway, and this is probably for anything in life, but really for, for this style of fishing is like, Dude, you can tell Jackson has really invested a ton of time and energy learning this craft. Like even, you know, even he said he probably gave us the top of the iceberg or tip of the iceberg, as you would say. Um, but man, I, you know, I'm just like, I love seeing people in their element. And so to see him, you know, in his element and talking about the love of catching these fish and do the little flashlight thing on the, on the bait and attracting attention and that deep of water. I'm like, this is a whole nother world, man. So, so once again, Gary, high five for bringing on a great guest to uh, educate our audience and maybe even inspire some of these guys who have never done that type of fishing to go find someone to take you out there and, uh, and do this style of fishing. Cause uh, it sounds like a blast. And those dudes over at intercoastal, you know, are there, I mean, Ben's okay, but the rest of those guys are like really great. Um, so, <laughs> I'll always have fun joking them, but they, they really are, man. They're a group. They're not just at a tackle shop selling stuff. Like they are real fishy dudes. Like they, you know, I, I bet you could go in there, Gary, and say, look, I'll pay you whatever you want to leave this tackle shop. Come work for me. And they're, they won't because they're not in it for the, for the money. They're in it for the love of fishing. And you can tell when you walk in there and talk to these guys. So, uh, very cool, man. Very cool guest, Gary. High five. Yeah, man. I'm, I was, I knew he was excited about it and man, I, again, I'll applaud him for sharing, man. A lot of people keep that information close and have the mentality. I figured it out. You go figure it out, but man, mm -hmm. kudos to him for saying, you know yeah. what? Why not, man? Like, let's get some other people into it. There's a lot of water out there. Yeah, man. I, I love it when companies and people that are involved in different companies and not just a company, but just people in general are about their community and really about bringing the community up. And I think uh, Fisherman's Post is doing that. The guys over there, Intracoast Angler are doing that. So yeah, man, awesome show, Gary. And what a shout out to another huge contributor in the fishing community is Marine Warehouse Center and also RA Hitch. We really appreciate those guys sponsoring this episode. And if you want to be a sponsor, if you have a local business, like once again, reach out to me, Billy at fishermanspost.com and we'll get you in the lineup and, 
and Gary will make you uh, make funny jokes about you or make up funny <laughs> jokes for you. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't make up jokes. I'm the messenger. <laughs> Gary, great episode, man. We'll see you in the next one. Thank you, man. Fisherman.